So my approach to my spiritual life over the years has been to learn. I've always tried to learn as much as I possibly can. I've tried to get past the faith that I was given as a child. The faith that I was given was so simplistic. It was Jesus good, everybody else bad. It was just that simple, right? Including you, you bad little kid. Jesus is good, everyone's bad. And that was the faith that I was given. And, and I just thought it would be more complex than that as I've grown older. And so I've just continued to study and reflect and learn. And that's a big part, since I wasn't raised um, as a Lutheran Christian, that was a big part of what drew me to Lutheranism. You know, Lutherans have always been the academics. We've always been the ones who have been the greatest learners. Martin Luther himself was an academic, right? And so he put in place that we are to always be learning. I've experienced over the course of years, however, that there are different kinds of learning. There is different ways that people approach learning. Some people continue to learn so that they can confirm what they already know and they can be better informed so that they can kind of keep things simple and black and white. Now, I believe there's a different kind of learning that God calls us to, namely that to understand nuance means to understand greater complexity. And that helps us and informs us, but it's also harder. The easiest thing is to have it black and white, right and wrong. The harder thing is to understand the nuance and the complexities that go along with every situation. That's the challenge. And that's what we kind of get stuck in. Our gut reaction wants to make it easy. And yet when we learn, kind of becomes harder, for sure. And that applies, especially in the season of Lent. I mean, some of the things that I was taught as a child just needed to be changed as I looked at and researched what really happened. For example, I was taught that uh, Jesus's crucifixion was squarely on the head of Pilate, that it was all Pilate's fault, that he was the one who did it. He's the one who's mentioned in the creed. It's got to be him. He's the one. It's just that easy. However, the more I've researched, the more I've realized that Pilate was a, actually a pretty compromised leader, and it was as much Caiaphas behind the scenes as it was Pilate, and so I always thought they were in cahoots together. And yet come to find out, they really couldn't stand each other. Caiaphas particularly didn't like Pilate. So what do we know? Well, Jerusalem was an occupied state. Matter of fact, it was an entire op occupied region, right? The Roman Empire um, had troops occupying a vast, vast amounts of land and areas. And, and Jerusalem was run by Caiaphas, except for the times when Pilate came there. Now, most of us are under the assumption that Pilate lived in Jerusalem. He did not. He actually lived on the coast. He lived in the area of Caesarea, and that was his primary residence. But he would come to Jerusalem whenever there was a festival. So five, six times a year, he would make his way. And when he came during those five, six times a year, he was very well accompanied. He would bring like 10,000 soldiers, right? So when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he's going in kind of to a powder keg. And Pilate had this reputation of keeping everyone in line. He was a brutal kind of dictator kind of guy. 
pretty much every place he went, blood ran in the streets of the locals. And so he was ultimately actually removed a few years after Jesus because of all of the rioting that he suppressed. It wasn't Caesar's uh, vision to have a bloodthirsty regime. And so Pilate was eventually removed. Now when he came to Jerusalem, he would stay in Herod's old house, which was called the Praetorium, and that was a place where he did judgments and held courts and all that kind of thing. But Caiaphas resented him, because Caiaphas was pretty much, the locals were allowed to govern themselves. Caiaphas could pretty much be in charge of everything until Pilate showed up. And then he was kind of rendered a toothless tiger. And that didn't set very well with Caiaphas. So let's learn a little bit more about Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, his, um, his predecessor. Likely from a very young age, Caiaphas would have shown great academic promise and so they would have probably taken him from his family and raised him within the walls of the temple, educating him on all the aspects of the law and then arranging for him his marriage so that he could assume the throne. And Caiaphas was the longest tenured leader of the temple of that generation. He served there 18 years, and the year that Jesus showed up was either 15 or 16, depending on how you count it. And he would have been an expert on the 613 laws of the mitzvot. The mitzvot is uh, kind of the Ten Commandments and then all of the other stuff. Anybody ever gone through and re read the Bible in a year? Well, there's that whole thing in there about Leviticus and Deuteronomy that gets pretty darn slog. It's pretty hard to read. <laughs> that's, that's the 613 laws of the mitzvot. It governs everything. What part of the sacrificed animal is supposed to be eaten and what part's supposed to be thrown away. Um, how the fabric is supposed to be woven together. I don't know if you realize this, but it was a sin in those days to weave two different kinds of threads, threads from two different kinds of yarns together in one fabric. They didn't have, obviously they didn't have polyester, right? And so, um, so there were all these laws and Caiaphas was the expert in all of them. That was his role. And he would have learned from Leviticus 20.22 that the people of God were to be set apart from all of the other peoples of the world. And therefore, the leaders also had to be even more set apart. And they created this temple, which was the only place that God showed up, and that was a place that was very set apart. And everything had to be clean and pure. The number of purity laws were over the roof. So there was just all of these things. And, the, and Caiaphas spent his entire life, his whole world was doing that. Everything he learned as a child revolved around what was pure and what was separate. And that people were the problem. The only time Caiaphas would have interacted with people was when they were brought to him and from afar he would judge whether or not they had leprosy or whether or not that tax had to be paid. He only dealt with the people who were having a problem. He never interacted with society as a whole. I don't know, maybe I can explain it this way. If you raise your kid in a museum that's locked all the time, you're gonna raise a pretty messed up kid. 
And that's who Caiaphas was. He had no bearings, no understanding of a greater world around him. And so then he hears about this preacher, this guy who's doing healings, this guy who is getting popular, this guy who people want to follow, who says you don't need to do those kinds of sacrifices. You don't, you know, God's in the world and God's with you and God's near you and this guy has the audacity to talk with commoners, to live with them, to reside with them, to hang out with, have conversation with, even have meal with the likes of tax collectors and prostitutes and this guy's saying that he's the Messiah? For for Caiaphas, the Messiah was coming from his ranks, not from out there. Because everything out there was impure and God was perfect. Now, (laughs) that's what drove Caiaphas early on in his ministry, his interactions with Jesus, to say, if this one guy is going to gain you know footing he will be eliminated because his ways will compromise the entirety of everything we've always believed and known about the faith and I will not have it it is better for him to be eliminated than for us to have a struggle you know when i was serving in a small congregation kind of in rural south of here, there were some towns in that area around, and some of those towns had reputations. And I remember the folks in my congregation, well, they're from that town, and, and they would just describe those folks in, in broad strokes. They would say, the people in that town, they don't know no different. Has anybody ever heard that before? Right? Y'all small town folks? Those folks over there don't know no different. Now, every time I prep a couple for getting married, I use this phrase with them. I tell them the story because I'm a believer that none of us know no different. We don't. And that's especially acute to when you're trying to get married and start a family. Your family becomes your family of origin and suddenly your new family person sitting next to you and you've got to become family. And all I know about being family is what I was raised with as a family and that was a dumpster fire, right? And so, and when, you know, Rose and I were getting started, all she knew about being a family was what she knew is being a family, right? And so we had to kind of compromise and come to an understanding of what our family would be like because neither one of us knew nothing other than what we were raised with. We didn't know no different. And none of us do. And when Caiaphas was thinking about what it would mean to take the faith forward and what it would look like to have a a savior, to have the Messiah come back, he didn't know any different than anything other than he had ever been taught his whole life, which was God was perfect and removed and not out there in that world. And so when Jesus starts to have compassion for him, That's remarkable. But that's also where it came from. I think Jesus knew better than any of us that Caiaphas really didn't know anything different other than what he was raised with. And what he was raised with was he was (laughs) ill-informed. And so when 
Caiaphas, who for weeks or perhaps months even was strategizing how to take Jesus down and he finally gets him captured and he chooses then to have him murdered in the slowest, most painful, most brutal way possible. And while that is happening to Jesus, he comes to the cross, looks up at him and says, if you really are the Messiah, then you come down from there. Ha, you did not. And as I talked about on Wednesday, you know, he's walking away and that's the moment at which Jesus looks heavenward and passionately yells out to God with no remorse coming from Caiaphas, no need, no desire for an apology or anything. Jesus still looks heavenward and says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know no different. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the genesis and the root. I mean, that's audacious amount of compassion. Jesus is currently being murdered slowly and painfully and he is forgiving the people who are murdering him. That's some mind-bending stuff. I'll leave you with the story of John Connolly. I don't know if you know who John Connolly is. John Connolly lived kind of a remarkable life. He was a Democrat from Texas. He um, wound up getting elected to office and then ultimately serving in John F. Kennedy's administration. And he left the Kennedy administration to run for and be elected Texas's governor. So he was the governor of Texas. He went on ultimately to... Um, be invited to serve, and he served as the Department of Energy Secretary under Richard Nixon, who's a bygone era, <laughs> um, when folks reached across the aisle. Um, but he had a, a distinguished political career. The thing that makes John Connolly an important national figure that we, I think, don't hear enough about is because he was sitting in the hop seat directly in front of John F. Kennedy when Kennedy was assassinated. And he himself was shot twice. And he had multiple surgeries and it took him a long time to get well. In 1964, he made comments that I think are so germane to us today. Um, it sounds like it could have been written today. It could have been spoken to us today. And it's this comments about the brokenness that we're in and the hope that we face, especially as we continue to learn and to grow. This is what Connolly wrote. He said that there was a cancerous growth that's been permitted to expand and enlarge itself upon the community and the society in which we live that breeds hatred, bigotry, intolerance. That is an outward manifestation of what occurred here in Dallas. I'm not the least fearful. So long as we have within ourselves, not hate, but human understanding. Not prejudice, but reason and tolerance. And not ignorance, but knowledge. And the willingness to use that 
knowledge. I pray that you will grow your heart, that you will grow to understand and move from the simplistic to the nuanced, from the easy to the hard, and that you will indeed then use what you know to impact how you live in this world compassionately tending to your neighbor. Jesus had the audacity to have compassion towards Caiaphas. I pray pray that some shred of that compassion will be in the lives of us all. Let us be in prayer.